0: gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Inasmuch as many have set down uh, an orderly account of the things that have been accomplished among us, having those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word having delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may have certainty concerning the things about which you have been taught. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. I invite you to be seated. How can I be sure that all this is true? How can I be sure that all this is true? Our faith... Christianity, what we've committed ourselves to, how can we be sure that this is true? A young man sat in a youth detention center, angry at the whole world. An older man would visit the young residents each week and bring along his own tin coffee mug and his Bible. He'd tell them about the good news of Jesus and how this story of Jesus' life could change anyone's life. Finally, this young angry resident confronted him. Prove it. He said, prove it to me that your book can change anyone's life. Now how did this story turn out? You'll have to wait till the end of the sermon to find out. How can I be sure that all this is true? Some would say when it comes to Christianity, when it comes to religion, when it comes to your ideology, that it's it's not really about trying to prove anything, not about having surety, it's about faith, just have faith, right? You're not supposed to be sure, you're supposed to have faith, but when people talk like that, what they really are saying is, uh, they're saying you've got to have blind faith. Right? Just have blind faith. Don't, don't think about it too much. Don't worry about it. You, you, you can't be sure, so just have your blind faith. And the difficulty we have is that blind faith is not biblical faith. Biblical faith is a reasonable faith. Blind faith will not stand up against the secular onslaught. Blind blind faith will not stand up against uh, professors in universities throughout this country as school begins this week, and even teachers in high schools who we know from stories will publicly at times ridicule Christians for their faith. When I was an atheist, I was part of this ridicule. I went to a Catholic high school. Um, but I still took it upon myself to let everybody know all the time that I did not believe a lick of this stuff. And I would publicly ridicule my friends. And I would say things. These words came, came out of my mouth regularly. I thought I was so smart. I'd say, there is no absolute truth. Now, it took me a few years till I bumped into a friend who taught me what a self-refuting statement was. There is no absolute truth. Well, actually, I've just refuted myself in saying that. It's a little bit like, you know, saying only stupid people use insults when they speak. You know, it doesn't stand up. And the difficulty is I've spent the 23 years of my life since becoming a believer, since becoming a Christian, trying to make sure that we have an opportunity to present Christianity in a way that does not come across as stupid or dumb or unintelligent but then I do things like what I did this morning I got up this morning and said to myself as I was getting ready to come to our 745 service I said you know what it is ridiculous that I drive two and a half blocks to come to church so, I'm gonna get up and I'm just gonna get up a little bit earlier and I'm gonna get dressed. And I'm gonna to walk to church. I'm just gonna walk, you know, the two and a half longer two-and-a-half blocks, and I'm putting on my suit, my suit jacket, my collar. You know where this is going, right? I'm a new Canadian. I'm adjusting to the temperatures. So I'm out my door at 7 in the morning, and of course, my brain should probably check in to say, woo, it's warmer at 7 in the morning than you thought it possibly could be. I was expecting some, you know, crisp morning air. There ain't no crisp air in the morning in Texas, I'm realizing, in August. Um, I'm about 20 steps down the road by this point, and I'm already perspiring, but there's no turning back at this point. And then at least it dawns on me, I think, okay, look at all the people driving by. I'm the only one walking. Everyone else is in cars driving by, and they're all looking at me as they drive by. And my first thought is, isn't this great? I'm wearing my collar, I'm walking down the road, I'm reminding them, hey, hey, go to church this morning. But that's not, I realize, after the sweat starts running down the side of my face, that's not why they're looking at me. They're saying, look at that idiot Christian walking down the road. What was he thinking? Our desire is not to present our faith as an idiot faith, as a, as a stupid thing, as a dumb thing. But rather, when we look at the Bible, we find that faith is not about blind faith. But faith is a reasonable faith. This is how Luke begins his gospel. These opening few verses from Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, the prologue, he sets up his readers to say, this is what I'm giving you. I'm about to present to you a reasonable faith. And we know that because in verse 4 he says, the purpose that he's writing is that you may have certainty about the things you've been taught. Certainty. He uses that word, certainty. Now, we need to unpack that word for a second because it doesn't mean what you think it means, right? If blind faith is on the one end, certainty is not sort of some ironclad, never a doubt in the world. That's not biblical faith either. The certainty that Luke is describing here, the certainty, the surety that a Christian can have is more about firmness, stability, security, What Luke is promising Theophilus, who verse 3 calls him most excellent Theophilus, so that probably indicates a rank in society, it's likely that Theophilus here is the benefactor who's behind the writing of this gospel. I mean, papyrus costs money. So Theophilus probably bankrolled this research project, and so Luke is telling Theophilus, his benefactor, but he's telling his readers, you and me, that there is certainty available, But this certainty means certainty in the understanding of something that's stable, something that's firm, something that's secure, something you can build your life upon, something that will persevere in the midst of storms. It doesn't mean there's no doubts. It doesn't mean there's no unknowns. I mean, probably the best description of faith in the entire Bible is in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. This is the description of faith. This is a biblical picture of what faith means. Now, faith, the writer of Hebrews says, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Right? So there's assurance there, but there's also some unseenness. In other words, faith involves believing in things we can't completely see and completely know in every way. And so faith and doubt, you could say, are not enemies, but actually mingle together somewhat within the life of the believer. As Frederick Buechner famously says, he says, Doubt is the ants in the pants of faith. It keeps it awake and moving. This is the certainty that Luke is promising, though. Something that though there's doubts, though there's things unseen, that this is still something that you can build your life on. Something that will survive storms. And Luke says that the way you're going to find that certainty, Theophilus, the way that you're going to find that certainty, that firmness, that stability, verse 3, this orderly account that I've written. In other words, what Luke is saying to Theophilus as he begins this this book, this 24 chapter gospel, as he's saying, as you read this account, as you read this story, you will find certainty in the biblical sense. You will find surety, solidness, security, something you can build your life on. It's in the reading of this story, these 24 chapters of Luke, that you will find that security, you'll find that certainty. Now, he could be writing about Mark or Matthew, or John's gospel, the book of Acts, you could talk about the rest of the New Testament, or for that matter, all of the Old Testament. Jesus will, after all, say at the end of Luke's gospel that all of scripture is pointed to him. All of scripture becomes the accounts that Luke is commending. If you read the account of what God has done in Jesus, that's where you find your certainty. It is in the reading, it's in the studying, it's in the living into the reality of this story did we find the security we desire? How can I know that these things are all true? Well, Luke says of this account that he's about to write here in his prologue, he says three things about it in these short verses. He says that this account he's giving Theophilus, that he's giving you and I, is a corroborated account. And what I mean by that is that it's, it's backed up. He's researched it. He's got a backing to this right? He didn't make this stuff up. You can go talk to other people who saw these things happen still in Luke's day, and they can corroborate this account. It's not just corroborated, though. It's also coherence. Oh, how I love that word in Christianity, coherent. It means it makes sense. It means when you, when you look at it, it works in this world, You know, you throw all your concerns at it and and you find that this is a coherent account of what a human life really is meant to look like. But it's not just corroborated, it's not just coherent, it's also compelling. As you read this account, it will grab a hold of you. So first, it's corroborated. Verse 2, Luke says that these from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, that word eyewitnesses. We read that just a moment ago in our passage from 2 Peter. We did not follow cleverly devised myths, but we were eyewitnesses, he says. We saw it with our eyes. Things really happened. And as I said, there was an ability, even when Luke is writing this, that you could hunt down some of those eyewitnesses and find them. But here's the problem we have in our contemporary world, if you're like me. Eyewitness these days in our news world, doesn't mean much anymore, does it? We live in this world of fake news, satire news, right? You've got The Onion, you've got The Beaverton if you're Canadian, you've got Babylon B if you're a Christian. And by the way, I love on Facebook watching Babylon B articles get posted. It's a satire news site for Christians, but half the Christians who comment on it don't know it's satire. So just let me tell you today, public service announcement, Babylon B is not real. I remember a few years ago, I was, uh, it was April Fools, and I didn't know that Google, some of you probably know this, maybe everyone knows this, I didn't, Google, every April Fools, does an April Fools joke on the world, right? Uses its search engine. And so I'm sitting there, it was 2013, and I'm sitting on my laptop, and I have a tendency to forget when April the first falls. Um, that's, not a, that's not a dare to all of you, but uh, I, I really do forget. And I'm sitting there at my computer, and I read, this phrase pops up. It says, do you ever wish you could search Google by smell? (laughs) Now you can. I was hooked. (laughs) Introducing Google Knows. And I sat there with my eyes getting bigger and bigger and I, and I read and they had a video and I watched this thing and I was just hooked about this idea that the sense and smells and, and I start looking at all the ports on my computer thinking how are they possibly going to use the ports Of the, is there like an insert you need how does this possibly work and finally I, I call Monica and I said, Monica have you heard about this Google Nose thing and she said oh yeah yeah that's a joke of course it is So the problem is with news, when you hear about eyewitness here, you think, what does it mean? What does eyewitness mean? Well, to you and I, eyewitness in this fake news culture may be a bit of a weird, strange thing we're living in right now, but in the ancient Near East, as I studied, this is one thing I realized, that in the ancient Near East, eyewitness meant something very different. Here's two things I learned about eyewitnesses in the ancient Near East. First thing is eyewitnesses in an ancient Near Eastern culture, they were corrected and checked Constantly. Eyewitnesses in the ancient Near East were constantly checked and corrected. The whole community was involved in making sure that those eyewitness accounts did not stray in funny directions. You see, you're thinking of an oral culture. We live in a print culture, but in an oral culture, stories get shared, eyewitness accounts get shared, and we think, oh, well, come on, if, if you gave five of us an eyewitness story, we'd all change it. But back then, the whole community would watch and correct. Bishop Tom Wright says it's a little bit like you sitting at Thanksgiving with your family, your whole family's around, and someone starts telling a family story. What happens if you start veering off and getting the facts wrong? You get corrected, right? That's not what happened, right? That's the exact same thing. Arguably, you could say that's what marriage is for sometimes, is you know, that, that moment of, honey, that's not, you're, you're conflating these stories, Right? But this is what would happen in the ancient Near East, that whenever you would tell these oral accounts, these eyewitness moments, they would guard and protect these things. They had to, because all they had was the oral account. So these were checked and corroborated and guarded by the community, eyewitness accounts. But also the second thing about eyewitnesses in the ancient Near East, I realized as I was a new Christian, these eyewitnesses they're talking about, they didn't recant their eyewitness account in the face of death. That again and again, what happened with these eyewitness accounts is the Romans, you know, they said to them, listen, guys, all you need to do, you don't need to die today, right? But you're pushing this faith into the world. You're wrecking the Roman Empire. So all you need to do is this. All you need to do is just recant. Just tell us that you made it up. He didn't really rise from the dead. Just say it and you can live. It's okay if you made it up. It's okay if it's a big conspiracy theory. Just admit it. Recant. And men and women to a person would not recant in the face of this persecution, in the face of death. They held to their eyewitness accounts because they said, we saw it. He is risen. He is alive. So these eyewitness accounts are part of what we mean when we say it's corroborated. And also verse 3 says he investigated everything closely. Luke himself then took all those eyewitness accounts and spent time investigating them, sorting through them, examining them. You, you, some of you have heard the story of Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel was the Chicago Tribune, uh, Tribune reporter, investigative journalist, a hardened, investigated, well-renowned, awarded journalist who came home to the unthinkable. His beautiful, intelligent wife had done the worst thing he could imagine. She joined a Bible study. He said, you're crazy. We don't believe any of that folk religion. And she said, no, it really isn't making an impact on my life. And he said, fine, you know what? I'm going to use all my investigative journalist skills. I'm going to go and prove you, you're wrong. And so Lee Strobel took all that energy, all that experience, all that ability, went out and investigated and and looked at archaeologists and looked at the text and talked to non-believers and believers, looked at these biblical texts, looked at other texts outside the Bible, brought it together, planned to write his big defense for his wife to say, this is all garbage. And at the end of the year, instead, he wrote a book called The Case for Christ* because as he studied, as he investigated, he said, the evidence demands an affirmative. This this is yes, this happened. It's corroborated. And he's a pastor and an author today. This is a corroborated account. Luke is saying you can have certainty, you can have stability if you read this account and it's a corroborated account. This happened. But not only is it a corroborated account, it's a coherence account. Oh, how I love that word coherence. We need coherence in a world that is so broken and so jarring right now. See, verse 3 says it's an orderly account, right? It's, it's in order. And in one sense, in order means that it's, it's a biography, right? This account is about Jesus, right? He, he was born, and he lived, and he did these things, and then eventually he died for the sin of humanity, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, it's in order, right? It's a biography. But coherent is more than just a coherent biography. It's not just in order, but it's coherent in the sense that when you look at his life, as you look at the life of Jesus as presented in this account, you begin realizing that this life begins to answer the questions of your life. That his life begins answering the questions of the hopes and fears of all the years, are met in thee tonight as we sing at Christmas. That bring all of your concerns, all of your challenges, all of your highs and all of your lows, and you bring them before this life, and you begin to see that this is the one life, the one story that begins making sense of it all. It's interesting that Christianity, as we know, I hope we know, rises and falls on the life of Jesus, that things really happened in that life, I've said before to friends that if you have the opportunities, I've been able to at times, if you're very respectful, and you listen carefully, and you're loving, and you're talking, for example, to a person of another religion, or another worldview, or another ideology, if you can press them lovingly enough, you can go to this place, and this is the place you can go, you can say, okay, let's hypothetically say, Buddhist, that the Buddha never lived, And they will vehemently tell you the Buddha did live and that his writings are based on what he actually said. But you say, okay, but I I know, I know, that's what you believe. But hypothetically, let's just push this to the hypothetical. What if he didn't live? What would happen to Buddhism? And if you eventually get to that place where they're willing to say, and again, lovingly and respectfully, you get to that place, they'll say hypothetically, well, yeah, if the Buddha didn't exist hypothetically, Buddhism still stands. The teachings, we can still follow them. And I'll say, okay. You do the same with a Muslim. It's it's a lot harder. But you can sit with a Muslim, as I've done, and you can say to them, lovingly, respectfully, hypothetically, what if Muhammad didn't actually exist? And, And they will much more vehemently than the Buddhists say, he did exist. But if you can get them to the place, respectfully, lovingly, to say, but hypothetically, what if he didn't? Will Islam stand? And they will say to you, somewhat begrudgingly, yes, islam and its teachings would stand even if muhammad didn't exist and then i'm able to say but see it doesn't work like that with christianity either jesus lived and did the things he said he did he was who he said he was and did the things that the bible says he did or else this whole thing falls apart it's not just a bunch of teachings it's not just a bunch of ethics and rules this is about a life This is about the fact that Jesus, a real person, God in the flesh came and dwelled among us and did these things and changed the world. This is why every Sunday we celebrate Holy Communion. Because as we gather around this table, we are saying that the death and resurrection of Jesus is absolutely central, it's the central moment in human history. That when Jesus came and died, that we believe as scripture tells us, he was taking everything wrong in you and me, all of our sin on himself, so that we could be acceptable to God and then when he died and rose again, he was overcoming death so we could live with him forever. We believe this actually happened. And you know, I'll tell you, after the 915 service today, I was in line shaking hands, and up walked a family, and the person that had brought them to church said, Father Paul, this is a Buddhist family we were brought to church today. And I thought, here we go. And do you know what this man said to me? He said, thank you you're absolutely right. I said, really? And, he, and then he was convincing me. I said, well, I'm, I was ready to back off a he, he said, no, no, seriously. You're absolutely right. What you said absolutely struck to the heart. Christianity cannot stand without Jesus, but Buddhism can. You see, at the heart of this story, this account, we have a life. And this life makes sense of our lives. It makes sense of all the challenges, all the joys, all the sorrows we have. I like how Dallas Willard says this. He says, I think we finally have to say that Jesus' enduring relevance is based on his historically proven ability to speak to, to heal, and empower the individual human condition. He comes where we are and brings the life we long for. An early report reads like this, life was in him, life that made sense of the human experience. But you see, for Luke, it's not just that it's a corroborated account, it's not just that it's a coherent account that makes sense of our lives, but it is finally a compelling account that grabs us and changes us and makes us live a different kind of life. Verse 1 says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. What a phrase! Things accomplished among us. In other words, what Luke is saying is things are happening. His life changed things, his life affected people's lives. These things have been accomplished. And what's great there, and and, and I don't want to dwell on the Greek text, but I'll just tell you, it's in present tense. And so here's what it means. Luke is writing 20, 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. What Luke is saying is this life is so compelling. It didn't just make differences and make things happen, you know, when Jesus walked the earth, but it's making things happen in people's lives even today. He still is changing lives. His life today, as this story is read and studied and engaged with, it changes lives. It's compelling. Stuff is happening. People are changing. We live in such a violent world right now. So much violence. So much confusion. And I know t- I've referenced this before, but when I when I hear of violence, like we've seen in the last few weeks, you know, it always brings me back to that one place in two thousand six. You remember that Amish schoolroom shooting? 2006, horrible moment, 10 girls killed, and then the shooter took his own life. And again, it was another picture of this tragedy and this horror, but do you remember what happened? I mean, the world stood horrified at that moment like we always do in those moments, but then the world stood dumbstruck because hours after, only hours, mere hours, after the shooting, the grandfather of one of these girls publicly, not with lawyers flanking him, but publicly on the news, forgave the shooter's family. This Amish community, this Christian community, and within hours, the women of that community, some of whom were actually mothers and grandmothers of the slain girls in that school, went to the widow of the shooter's house, the shooter's widow's house, to comfort her because they said, you have had a loss today too. And then they took up a fund to support the shooter's widow. And the world stands back dumbfounded and says, who lives like this? Who can show such love as this? Who can show such compassion and reconciliation and forgiveness? What life, what compelling life is underneath all of this? And it is Jesus' life. His life is compelling. It changes people's lives. And this is why, here at Christ Church, and in all that we do on Sundays, on weekends, on our Wednesday nights, and our other programs, our classes, our courses, from the youngest to the oldest, we proclaim and uphold this story, this account, because we know that it is a compelling account that changes lives even today. And this is why, going into this fall, because I'm so convinced of this, how important this is, that this year ahead, I'm gonna be going, along with the other things I'm doing, I'm gonna go Wednesday nights to the student ministry building and I'm gonna teach this story to the teens every Wednesday. I'm not gonna get in a sumo suit. I'm not gonna put marshmallows on my mouth. Younger priests can do that. But I will teach <laughs> because we need to convey this compelling story to the world, to this next generation. How can I be sure that all this is true. A young man sat in a detention center, angry at the whole world. An older man who would visit the young residents each week kept bringing in his own tin coffee mug and his Bible and he'd tell them about the good news of Jesus Christ and how Jesus' story can change anyone's life. And finally the young resident confronted him and said, prove it. Prove it. This book of yours can change anyone's life. And so the older man turned over the tin mug that he brought every week and showed on the underside the etching of a swastika. And he said, I carry this tin with me to remind me of what the Lord rescued me from and how his story can change anyone's life. And that young resident, he was convicted And he joined a Bible study, and he met the Lord, and he said yes to Jesus, and he became a priest. No, it's not me. And he, I heard this story the first time, I mean, I'll tell you, I've never met a more joyful man in my entire life. And I met, I heard this story the first time that he preached in my church in Ottawa after I'd hired him as my curate. How can we be sure that all this is true? This orderly account has been given to us. How can we know this is true? How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent Word! What more can He say than to you He hath said? To you who for refuge to Jesus hath fled, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest this story. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.